0: One of the things I did before even jumping off that cliff was, I went and made sure I talked to skeptics as well, because there were people who said, oh, this is impossible. And I think one of the mistakes sometimes that few people make is that that notion of confirmation bias. And just, you know, it feels a lot better to talk to people who think you have the greatest idea they've ever heard, right? And I actually will always tell people, if I want someone to tell me how great I am, I will call my mother. She will happily do that, right? But but when I when I sit down for, for feedback and insight, like I want people to poke hole, holes in what I'm doing and, and how we're doing it, because that's how you make it better. And so it was important to sit down with the people who thought this, was never going to be possible and then thought it was a fool's errand because I want to understand why and maybe they were right and how and where we spend our time is such an important decision we all make and so man I don't want to spend my time on something if I can avoid doing something that's never going to work
1: and how you know something that's very difficult for people because they'll get the first person especially entrepreneurs starting out I'm sure you've seen this you know they'll get the first person who will say oh that'll never work That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Irving Fain is the CEO and founder of Bowery Farming a modern farming company focused on innovating and advancing agricultural practices. Bowery uses smart indoor growing environments to cultivate cleaner and better quality food and uses 95% less water than farmland. Irving and Bowery have raised over $500 million since its founding. Irving previously was CEO and co-founder of CrowdTwist, a loyalty and analytics platform that was acquired by Oracle in 2019. I started the interview by asking Irving about growing up and was being an entrepreneur always on his mind?
0: So the answer is I was attracted to being an entrepreneur Long before I knew what an entrepreneur even was, or or let alone how to spell the word entrepreneur, (laughs) I still still don't know. Also, we all have our own sort of spectrum of understanding and lived experiences. But it's interesting to think about how much the definition of entrepreneurship has evolved and changed, particularly in the last kind of couple of decades with the onslaught and you know the kind of introduction of the internet and technology, and and, and so many more people are creating and building in, in so many new places, and so a lot of that didn't exist. So now listen, I was eight, eight, nine years old, but I was running around. I'd run down to this corner store, a place called Harrison's. I'd buy these little plastic animals for a dime. I'd bring them home. I'd merchandise them in this Tupperware container and I'd bring them to school the next day and I'd sell them for a quarter. Good business when you're, (laughs) you're eight. The school is not very excited about commerce on the playground. So I got in trouble for that one. But I was... I don't know why, but I was just sort of attracted to building and creating. I had like a snow shoveling business where we got all these customers from around the uh, neighborhood and I dragged my brother up at five o'clock in the morning because we didn't know if school would be canceled. And we had to make sure we shoveled before school if, if it wasn't canceled. And so, you know, I just, I was attracted to the whole idea of creating and building businesses for as long as I can remember. I kind of always knew this was the path I'd be on.
1: And where did that drive come from? Early on, do you think?
0: There's this like nature versus nurture question people always talk about. So I, I, I don't think I can ignore like my, my father was an entrepreneur, his father was an entrepreneur. So there undoubtedly, you know, there has to be some element of of just validation and comfort when you can look and say, Oh, here's somebody like you know, here's my father, he's doing this thing and and, and he's okay and, and he's succeeding at it in some manner or another. And so I guess it's an okay path versus you hear stories of people who say, oh, you know, my parents were doctors and their parents were doctors. All my cousins are doctors. Now you can absolutely still be an entrepreneur in that environment as well, but you have to break out of the mold, maybe a little more. But the interesting thing is I was never pushed to do this either. Like I was doing this before I was even having conversations with my parents about, you know, what I was going to do. I was literally eight, nine, 10 years old. Like, you're talking about being a fireman or a garbage man at that point and things like that and things like that you're excited about. And I, I would find myself, I still remember I was a young kid and I, I'd drawn out on a yellow legal pad, a plan for a privatized space company. Um, amazing. And I went and brought it to my uncle and he was like, that's never going to work. Uh, <laughs> no one's going to be able to do that. So credit to Elon Musk and many other people now who have made that work. But uh, I just, I don't know what it was. Like there, there's definitely some nurture to it, but I, I think there has to be some nature to it as well.
1: Yeah. What do you think in terms of seeing your father, his father, I don't know if you you actually witnessed him in business. What do you think it was that you learned or that struck you the most about the life of an entrepreneur?
0: I was so young. I don't know that I originally that I fully could even grasp it. But as I think about it, I think the ability to create the world the way that you want to in front of you was just something that I think about right off the bat. My father was also in real estate and he was in real estate when there was a pretty big crash in the 80s. And so I also watched success turn to like very, very difficult times. And so as a young kid, it was really seared in your memory of like, wow, this is not consistent. It can go well and it can go poorly. And both of those realities are very, very possible. And so I think there's a, an inherent volatility in being an entrepreneur, which, which exists in a much more intense way than working within a bigger organization, which sort of insulates you for that. So I think I saw both sides of those pieces of the, of the equation.
1: Yeah, I mean, just what you said right there, probably every entrepreneur has gone through something like that or to that degree. I've noticed from all of these entrepreneurs I've interviewed or talked to, learned from, Picking yourself off the mat after something like that happens is really, I think one of the, the top skills as an entrepreneur, which will make someone successful. It sounds like, and I'm sure from your businesses you were able to, or are able to do that. Have you had situations like that over the course of your career where, I mean, you've been down on the mat and, you know, you really had to pick yourself up.
0: I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's any entrepreneur who hasn't faced that at some level, probably weekly, right? And sometimes it's daily in some manner or another. And, and, you know, the severity of that obviously varies immensely, but tenacity and perseverance are probably two of the most important attributes as an entrepreneur and the ability, as you said, to just keep punching no matter, no matter what is happening. And. They're so innumerable. Like I could go on. We could spend the entire time just talking about them. You know, yeah. I, I you think about the deals you won, you know, and then didn't deliver the way you wanted to, or the deals you lost that were crushing when you lost them. And I think what most people say will, will tell you. You know, I'm far from the first person. Is like. The highs are high and the lows are low, and the actual frequency that exists between those highs and lows is incredibly short comparatively to most other careers. And yeah. that's probably the part of it that makes it hard to adjust. And for some people, just not something that they want to do. And for other people, that's something that they thrive on.
1: And as a successful entrepreneur like yourself, and we'll get into some of the businesses you've built, sold, and of course, we want to talk about Bowery Farming. but. How were you able personally? do you think it's personality? Do you think you taught yourself or just to understand that, like you said, one day it's going to be low, one day it's going to be high. Just I'm still i'm I'm sure it's still like that. How are you able to handle that from a mental perspective?
0: I mean, these are good questions and hard questions to answer. I don't know the answer to that other than, it is just something inside of me that I am okay dealing with things that are extremely difficult and balancing them with moments of extreme elation and excitement and enthusiasm. And like, you know, any human being gets worn down when you get beaten down over times. It's, it's natural, but your ability to step back and sort of persevere, I think it requires number one, you have to really believe in what you're doing and why you're doing it. And one thing that, that that I would certainly say is like at some point being an entrepreneur is not a casual endeavor and it, it it isn't a hobby necessarily. I mean, there are, you can do entrepreneurial things as a hobby. That's not what I mean. But if you're really trying to build and start a, a substantial business, and by the way, it doesn't have to mean it's a technology business. I mean, if you start a corner store or a car wash or anything like this, that, that's a hard thing to do too. Like starting anything is hard. You know, you are putting your full self into that. and Sometimes when, I, especially in the last decade or so, as we've talked about, as entrepreneurship has become so much more popular, so much more commonplace, you sort of notice this sort of misunderstanding almost that it, it, it's sort of a, a fun, easy journey, right? And it's it's, got, it's it's all about the glory and the being in the newspaper or in, this, in, su, in such and such an article or on your podcast or whatever it may be. And and even to the point of like, I always laugh the idea of like the long road to overnight success, right? You know, things work and people, everyone's like, of course that was happening. And and yet what goes into actually making that happen? And I, for me, like I've, it means you have to want to do it and want to be involved in it for the right reasons, because the hobbyist mentality will only take you so far because at some point it will just test you enough to say like, listen, are you really in this or not? And I going back to what we were saying before, like I have wanted to do this for so long, like and building something and not just building something, but building something that is durable and substantial and that matters has been something I've cared about at the core of myself since as long as I can remember. And so that desire to achieve that persists through any amount of downturns and even any amount of upsides where I know eventually you come back down again, right? And and that's just, I I think that's probably for me what allows it to be possible.
1: Yeah, I I love that answer. It's so true. Everything you just said there, I mean, right on just in terms of the entrepreneur and the life of an entrepreneur and, and what keeps you going. Talk to me because when you came out of school, you actually first after you, you know, your foray on the on the playground and the selling, and I'm sure you did a hundred other things yes. prior, but you ended up, I think, going into finance.
0: Yeah, for for a very purposeful reason, though. I mean, I, I had a liberal arts education. I was actually an English major of all things, and then so I said, okay, I I was, I mean, I've been pretty singularly focused on this journey, and so I said to myself, okay, English major, liberal arts. I need to make sure I learn business, and so I took every accounting class I could. I was actually a TA for accounting because <laughs> I wanted to balance off the most liberal of liberal arts disciplines in a liberal arts school. And then I said to myself, okay, how do I learn business as this, you know, 21 year old kid? And listen, the, the the ecosystem of startups and entrepreneurship looked at that time, nothing like yeah. it does today. So I think you can come out of school today and there's so many incredible opportunities as a kid that you can jump into to just learn about what whatever industry you want to and building businesses and being a product manager or an engineer or a supply chain person, or a marketer, or whatever it is, the, the, the ecosystem wasn't the same back then. So I, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to learn business. I'll go be an investment banker. Uh, and, and I did, though, work in the side of banking that was helping companies raise capital, like later stage, Series C, Series D types of rounds of capital. And so I wanted to stay close to the types of businesses I ultimately wanted to build, um, which is what I did. And I spent two years there. And, and truth is, I learned great. I'm, I'm not sure I learned quote a business, but I did learn skills that are very valuable even till today. I'm sure. um, and, but I, I knew after two years, I'd sort of gotten what I was hoping to get out of it. And, and it was ready. I was ready to move on. The question of being a longtime finance person was never really something I was considering.
1: Talk to me about your first business and the business that, you really focused on and, and built? And, and what was that like when you decided to go for it?
0: So we were obviously talking before we started, but I, I had been working at the online division in Clear Channel, a big radio group. And I was responsible for a division within there and, and you know content and product and some other areas. And, and the iPhone had come out. And so myself and a few people saw a big opportunity and we ultimately ended up building and then running iHeartRadio. It was such an interesting, amazing time. So much was happening with media and streaming and and just you know the world of when I when this started, MySpace was still around and Facebook didn't even have the news feed. It was like pages. And so we were building widgets to stream radio and other content. And so and things were changing so quickly. So it was exciting in that regard, but I just didn't want to be an entrepreneur. Like I knew I wanted to work and do something on my own. So I was spending three or four nights around a kitchen table with a good friend that I'd met at Clear Channel at the time, just kicking around different ideas and hacking away at different different potential businesses. And it was it was an interesting process. I look back at it now and I'm like, wow, we spent way too much time on way too many bad ideas and probably skipped over and didn't spend enough time on some good ideas, but such is life. We ultimately jumped into something. The lesson in that whole endeavor for me was the exploration is awesome topic at some point. And you know, in an effort to build a business, like. You, you can't be foolish and rush it too quickly and not do the work, but thinking that you're going to get to a definitive answer is a fallacy. Like there yes. is no definitive answer. And so the, the ultimate, and I talk a lot about this with entrepreneurs who are, who are getting started, is that moment of jumping off the cliff. And, and, and in essence, what you're trying to do is you're trying to shorten the distance as much as possible between the ground and the cliff itself. But everybody has this fantasy of making it a step. And the truth is, it's always a clip. It's never a step. And so the question is just like, are you going to be ready to jump off of it? And very much, hey, I just got to a point. I said, let's go. Like, you know, the, the way I, I say to my team sometimes is you don't catch a pass if you're not on the field. And uh, And so we got started. And at the time, we, we found a few people who believed in us and were willing to give us some friends and family capital, which was you know, what you raised at that point, which was just enough to like have a few people on the team and start building. And we ended up building a nice enterprise software business in the marketing technology space.
1: And tell us about that business because I know you grew it and you ended up selling it. Can you uh, tell me? Yeah, about it was a, how it worked. It was
0: a, you know so it was a loyalty and analytics platform that was essentially taking loyalty programs we all interact with, airline miles and. Retailer loyalty programs, which tend to be really focused on when you spend money, uh, you get rewarded. And, and this was when you know social media was blooming, and mobile, and location, and all these. And so the thought was that loyalty should should both measure and reward activities well beyond the point of purchase and well before the point of purchase. So you could build a much more holistic view of a consumer and how they interact with your brand before and after purchase. You could really generate loyalty, understand your customers better. And you could do it instead of in an, an agency-driven model, which is what a loyalty had historically been, you could do it via software and a software-as-a-service platform. And so that was kind of the premise of it. And you know, we built it up over six-plus years. And uh, it was it was a really interesting journey with great customers like Procter & Gamble and Nestle and Pepsi and L'Oreal, like big enterprise software customers. So I learned lots about selling to big customers, lots of the hard way, as you said, you know, like, <laughs> in the, like not ever having sold enterprise software and learning how to sell enterprise software will humble you no matter what. That is for certain. And, uh, but, but it was it was fun in that regard. And I ended up leaving because I really wanted to, to work on something that I not only had a personal passion for, but but I felt it was solving a problem that I was more passionate about, but also that had a broader impact on the world. And so I stayed on the board. We sold the company to Oracle. Uh, it was it a was great outcome for everybody. And then the product actually lives on within Oracle's uh, suite, which is nice to see. So, um, and I, I sort of turned my attention towards the future of food and agriculture.
1: And and tell me why at that point, and, and let's get into barry farming, but what was it that really sparked your interest in food, agriculture, and building a business in that space?
0: So there's a, a few answers to that. Number one, I've always been a believer that technology and innovation can solve hard and important problems. And so that, that's been sort of a core view that I've had for, for as long as I can remember, you know, as long as technology's really been around, right? And, and I wanted to do something, as I mentioned, where I had a personal interest and passion, but also that I felt like the problem that I was solving was more substantial than just driving returns for the folks on my cap table. And I started to look around really broadly at all different industries and businesses and one of the or industries and areas. Uh, and one of the things that I started to spend more time on one area was agriculture. And I was amazed because here's the oldest and the largest industry industry in the world. And first of all, what was interesting to me was there's there's been lots of innovation in agriculture. But at the time, and this was around two thousand and fourteen, there was relatively limited digitization in agriculture. I mean, it was it was pretty early on and so many technology innovations that we were seeing around us at the time weren't necessarily yet making their way into agriculture. Some were, but but slowly. And so I thought it was so interesting that, like, there weren't that many people from the world of innovation that I had come from focusing on agriculture. And so many of these technologies represented interesting opportunities in agriculture. And yet I could come from marketing technology. There were hundreds and hundreds of companies, you know, kind of innovating in this area. And yet this industry was so enormous. And then you looked at it and saw like food and agriculture are the largest combined greenhouse gas emission contributors in the world. I and mean, agriculture just alone is the second largest GHG contributor right behind energy, just a hair behind it. And 70% of the world's water every year goes to agriculture. We use 6 billion pounds of pesticides annually across the world. And we've lost 30% of all of our arable farmland in just the last 40 years because of the intensive way that we're, we're farming and we're growing our food. And at the same time, our population's growing. We need more food to feed that growing population. And we are really urbanizing. You know, in the next 20, 30 years, 70 to 80% of people are going to be living in and around cities. And so I became increasingly obsessed with this question of how do you get fresh food more efficiently and more sustainably to urban environments? And I'd started wide with the aperture at all of agriculture, and I'd sort of narrowed down to that problem over time.
1: And what did you learn? What was your thought? And then how did you start Bowery? Learned lots of
0: things. Uh, you know, I read more USDA reports and talked to more people and read more articles and watched more content than you could ever imagine. I mean, I kind of taught myself everything I could about everything that was happening and went and just kind of talked to anyone who would talk to me and met with anyone who would meet with me. I got increasingly interested in this specific problem around the urban side but then what really I needed to do is convince myself that it was possible. Like I saw this opportunity and there was kind of two camps, one camp that was saying, oh my God, this is the future. This is going to be you know, all farming. And then another camp that was like, this is never going to happen. It's never going to work. The truth is on both ends of that spectrum, that tends to not usually be the truth. And so I, you know, but, but I was curious to, to, to why both sides of that equation and anyone in the middle felt the way they did. And so I started to explore, like, is there a way to do this in a scalable manner? And scalable to me is large volumes of crops, a large variety of crops, consistent high quality crops, and ultimately at a price point that that creates the largest market opportunity and therefore impact. and we I spent you know a year and a half built built a team and spent a year and a half just working on and and understanding how could this be done what are the different methods we tested built different farming technologies researched everything we could and I was sort of this time more careful probably to not let that asymptote carry forward too long and it had gotten to a point where I got conviction that based on what we knew thus far there was a way to do this and do it scalably and. Six more months of research wasn't going to give us six months of value. And so it was time to, to take that jump off the cliff.
1: When you took the jump off the cliff and, and you had obviously learned so much from talking to people and you'd obviously had a very good idea, I think, of what you were going to do from that time when you did take the jump and, I, and hopefully it was a step. Not a job, a, a, which never is. like Never a step, right? Especially in this business. What was that in terms of your initial goal and where the business is today? Has a lot of that changed in terms of your initial thinking and where the business is today?
0: So we we do today exactly what we hoped we would do, right? With the, the the core business is is actually the same structure, the same idea, but obviously that's the large umbrella, right? Underneath the umbrella, lots of aspects of the business have evolved and adapted and adjusted over time. I mean, an exercise in entrepreneurship is a, a, is an exercise in agility and adaptation, in essence, right? You you cannot be an, an entrepreneur and not be adaptable. It, it's critical. In fact, it is the recipe to success because you have to take inputs in, learn, adjust, take inputs in, learn, adjust. And we've done that in spades here, I think, in Bowery, and partly because there is no playbook for what we do. There is technologies around indoor growing. Greenhouses have been around for hundred plus years that you can learn from. And folks like NASA have been growing food indoors, you know, since the 80s. So we're not the first people to do this, but to do it in the way that we're doing at the scale we're doing it hadn't really been done successfully before. And in fact, you know, to what we were just, just talking about, one of the things I did before even jumping off that cliff was I went and made sure I talked to skeptics as well because there were people who said, oh, this is impossible. And I think one of the mistakes sometimes as you people make is that that notion of confirmation bias and just, you know, it feels a lot better to talk to people who think you have the greatest idea they've ever heard, right? And I actually will always tell people if I want someone to tell me how great I am, I will call my mother. She will happily do that. Right. But, but when I, when I sit down for, for feedback and insight, like I want people to poke holes in what I'm doing and, and how we're doing it because that's how you make it better. And so it was important to sit down with the people who thought this was never going to be possible and then thought it was a fool's errand because I want to understand why and maybe they were right and how and where we spend our time is such an important decision we all make. And so, man, I don't want to spend my time on something if I can avoid doing something that's never going to work.
1: And how something that's very difficult for people, because they'll get the first person, especially entrepreneurs starting out. I'm sure you've seen this. They'll get the first person who will say, oh, that'll never work. And it's funny. You went looking for that, but they'll hear that. And then they won't continue. What When you heard the skeptics, and I'm sure you heard tons of them, You know, like you said, both sides, what was it that you just said to yourself, this is going to work?
0: We tried to be very deliberate, objective, and sort of scientific or fact-based in our analysis. And so you could only know so much at the time. But when someone asked, saying it wasn't going to work, the question was, well, why? Okay, well, what about it isn't going to work? What's making you say that? What's your analysis? What's the data that's leading you to feel that way? And then understanding that data and then going back and saying, OK, well, can we prove that actually we can do it in a different way that means that that data is wrong? And in fact, what's fascinating to me is lots of the data that we were told and baselines that we were shared or maximums that we were told about, in many cases from folks who've been studying this stuff in the academic world, actually weren't or haven't held forward. Because a lot of times researching something in an academic institution is entirely different than doing it in a commercial endeavor, you know, a, as a, a business function. And that, that proved to be the case in a lot of areas. You know, there were like a lot of this was also misunderstanding from folks because there just wasn't a lot of data to base this on either. And so were some criticisms, right? Sure. Some things hadn't been figured out yet, but there is no idea that is fully fleshed out and clearly will work that hasn't been done because the market's at least efficient enough that if it's that clear then more than likely it's been accomplished. And I was talking to somebody on my team recently and she was saying to me, oh man, you know, the more I learn, the more uh, challenges I'm finding. And I said, absolutely, that's exactly right. Because if the more you learned, the more the easier it seemed to be and the more obvious it was that you were just going to be able to do it, that would have led somebody else to already have gotten there before and already have done it. I love and that. so I think a lot of it is like, why is it not going to work? And can I? Is there? do I have answers to those questions that maybe other people haven't found before?
1: I love that. Getting it going, starting, huge endeavor. You've raised a lot of money, brought in a lot of partners. How difficult was that when you first started to to start raising capital?
0: you know i i was fortunate i was fortunate for a few reasons number one i've been working in and around this ecosystem for a long time so i had a lot of relationships and i knew folks you know so it, which makes a big difference i i i'd done this already once before and so being a second time entrepreneur i think gives you an inherent advantage right there also without a question you know that it was at a time where the markets were in a generally you know this was 2015 the markets were in a generally healthy place it wasn't like the last few years but you know the markets were were at least open in that regard and I think actually the most important piece of the puzzle and and what I, the advice I give to younger entrepreneurs all the time is I spent a lot of time not only getting to know people who I didn't know, but also with people who I had already known regularly talking through the idea and what I was thinking about and trying to understand both the things I was very confident were exciting, but also the things I was concerned about that could be blockers. And Letting people come along with me on the journey for, you know, almost a year while I was thinking through it and researching it or more than a year gave people sort of an inside view into how I was thinking about the business and how it, like the work I was doing and the rigor that we were putting towards answering the problems. And so when it came time to say, okay, you know, we're gonna raise some money to go build our first farm and to really get this started. It wasn't as if I showed up and said, hey, Robert, good, good to see you. Here's the thing I'm going to do. I know we don't know each other, but how about you give me some money, right? And and not only would that be a, a harder pill to swallow, given that what we're pitching is a very different type of business than, than average, but I, the other thing I'll tell people is, listen, This is a very long-term partnership you're building with whoever it is that's coming in as a financier. And so it behooves both sides of that equation to get to know one another and make sure it's a good partnership. Because even unlike a marriage, which is the cliche people always use, there's no divorce in this relationship for the most part.
1: That's a good point. Just in terms of the amount of money, building farms, building what you're doing, obviously doing well, being successful. But you've had to raise an enormous amount of money. Can you talk about just what it's taken, even just to get to where you are right now?
0: It's wild. To me. I mean, listen, like, you know, my first business raised a fraction of what we've raised here, and you know, I will never forget the the Series A at CrowdTwist, my first company, ended up being six million dollars, and we were the first TechStars class with David Tish and and Adam Rothenberg in New York. You know, years and years ago. And people were like, whoa, $6 million Series A. And now I think about that, and it makes me laugh. Like That doesn't even hit the register any longer. It certainly didn't the last few years. But at the same time, we, we benefited from the climate in the sense that like this is a, a more capital-intensive business. There's no question about that. And what we've really focused on, I've really focused on, is raising the right amount of capital at the right time for the business. And fundraising is an Exercise in milestone management at its most basic level and understanding where you are at that moment, what it is you need to do to prove out your business and thesis to the next moment, and maybe that next moment is being profitable and not needing to raise any money, or maybe that next moment is needing to gain more capital, but to do the next phase in the business, it could be either one, and because raising money isn't the end state, right? Raising money needs to be a, a, a leverage point to get you to the end state, in some cases, you don't even need to raise. But figuring out how much money do I need to get to that next point, and will that next point be material enough to be able to help me go out and then bring more capital in, at a price that I'm happy with to then go to the next point, which again, could be profitability, it could be another round, whatever that is. And so we actually were tried to be really thoughtful and not raise too much money at different moments, even when the market was really strong, because we wanted to make sure we were taking enough capital to do what we needed to do, but also to stay disciplined, to do and focus on the activities that matter. Money has an interesting way of spending itself. And so it's easy to convince yourself that if you just raise. X much more, you'll it'll just last you X much longer and you won't spend it, and then you spend itself. And I think we've seen some of that in the past set of years. And we've done the best we could to be disciplined along the way.
1: Looking at Barry and looking at the landscape, not just here in the US, but globally, what is your vision if you were to look three to five years down the road, maybe longer? Because I know this is this is a Kind of game changer type of business this isn't a quick flip set like you're really revolutionizing like you said, the original industry, right, but where do you see it?
0: yeah, so you you're absolutely right. I mean, three years is a it's not. Nothing. But this is this has always been a generational play for me. This has always been a long game and building a generational food and agriculture business that really changes the face of this industry. And we have a shot at doing that. We got to keep executing. I realized that we didn't even talk about sort of what power is. And so the benefit just for to, to give context for folks who are listening is you know, so so we're building warehouse scale, indoor smart growing environments where we stack our crops from the floor to the ceiling. We grow under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun. We grow in a totally controlled and contained environment. So we can grow fresh produce 365 days a year, independent of weather, independent of seasonality. And so it's reliable, consistent supply of quality fresh food year round, which is essentially a departure from 10,000 years of agriculture. But on top of it, we grow completely pesticide-free, completely agrochemical-free food. So no herbicides, no fungicides, no insecticides. We are 100 times plus more productive than a square foot of farmland outside, and we use a very small fraction of water compared to traditional agriculture. And it's all powered by robotics and automation that we design and build on our end. And it's also powered by what we call the Bowery Operating System, which is a proprietary system of software, hardware, computer vision, AI, and sensor and control systems that manages and monitors the entirety of our operation. And so all of this, in essence, allows us to take what is a very complex supply chain with many players, lots of time, lots of distance, and we collapse it into a single building that we locate close to the points of consumption itself, and we can deliver a product a day, day and a half after we harvest it versus weeks or months of time in the existing yeah. supply chain, and we can do it in a much more sustainable way. To answer your question,. I- <laughs> <laughs> Right now, we're, we're focused on the U.S. market, and we're expanding across the U.S. We're, we're opening a farm in Atlanta this year. We're opening a farm in Texas later this year. We have farms in Maryland and New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania, and uh, we're going to continue to open farms across the U.S., but ultimately, this is a global opportunity. I mean, the challenges we're solving aren't just challenges. U.S. challenges aren't just Northeast challenges. They're global challenges. And in fact, we grow a lot of our food here in the U.S. We're fortunate. We grow you know 30 plus percent of our fresh produce, at least in the U.S. right now. Lots of countries don't have that ability. And so this becomes a global opportunity. And the produce that we, gr- that we grow and sell on the shelf today is actually a fraction of what we actually grow through agricultural science efforts. And so not only will our footprint be a lot larger, but the breadth of products that we offer will be much broader as well
1: yeah i mean it's it's a world-changing opportunity for what you're doing how does that make you feel inside pressure
0: (laughs) (laughs) back to our conversation at the beginning The mark of entrepreneurship is it never goes away and you don't take a vacation from it and you don't matter where you go, there is no place, not only in the world, but in the universe you can go because it lives inside of your head. And when when you're an entrepreneur, you care about it deeply and fully and that caring will manifest itself at random moments and random places that you don't anticipate. And I take what we're doing very seriously i take all the people who work at bowery and their belief in what we're doing very seriously i take all our capital partners our customers our consumers, like their belief in what we're doing very seriously. And and by no means is that all on me. I have an extraordinary team. It's actually my favorite part of this whole, the whole journey is the incredible team. But I I feel the, I feel the intensity of what's in front of us and and the recognition that we've made so much progress, but actually much more progress is still to be made than has been made so far.
1: Yeah, no, that's got to be such a great feeling. And, you know, before I let you go, I want to ask you, You were talking about it at the beginning, and I was laughing because when I started my first business, too, people looked at me like you're starting it. Like it wasn't about entrepreneurship was looked down upon. It really, it really was. And I'm going back to when I started my first business in the mid, mid, late '90s. Right? It's not where it is today, where every person or you know most people coming out of school, entrepreneur, I want to be the next, create the next Facebook or whatever it might be. But in terms of advice, if you were to look at right now, entrepreneurs or people who wanted to be entrepreneurs coming out of school or being young, what advice would you give to them going back to what you just said about pressure and everyday kind of the roller coaster like we talked about at the beginning. What advice would you give to someone who just jumped off the cliff and maybe is struggling with saying, should I keep this going? Should I not?
0: So I, I the the simplest answer, you know it there's some things you shouldn't keep going, right? And so asking yourself the question is actually a, is a mature and rational exercise. But to the extent that that's coming not from a legitimate reason to not keep it going and actually just from the, the challenge of fighting the battle, it's such a personal journey in the sense. I think that I, I, I'd answer the question, I think, it differently in some ways, which is the advice I'd give somebody before they jumped off the cliff would be to spend a little bit of time thinking about and understanding why it is that they want to jump and make sure that they understand what the jump itself entails and what it looks like. Because fortunately for anybody who's doing that now coming out of school, there's incredible resources. There's podcasts like yours, there's blogs abound. I mean, you can understand the life of an entrepreneur more holistically today. Ever before. And so while you can't live it necessarily, you can get a lot closer to understanding it today than certainly when you were doing this in the mid 90s. And so not getting caught up in the enthusiasm and the excitement and the hype, for example, of the next Facebook, and actually just spending time to understand that there is no short road to overnight success. It is a very long road to overnight success. And, and is that a road you tr- you truly want to travel? Now, once you've come to the answer being yes. To answer the other question is what, what, what advice do you tell someone? It is, there is always around every corner is another corner. And that, that cuts positive and cuts negative because sometimes when you're like, oh, I'm just going to make it around this and then it'll be all better, that, that's naivety because there'll be another corner. But the other side of it is when you're on a tough corner, you'll come around and there is an end to that corner as well. And so that perseverance and ability to keep punching is absolutely critical.
1: I love that, man. I totally agree. And such great advice, especially as we have so many folks who listen to this podcast who are thinking about it. And like you said, there's so many resources, but what you just said about turning the corner and when you think something might be negative, it could turn positive or turning the corner, positive, negative, but just keep throwing the punches. I couldn't agree with you more, Irving. Thank you so much for joining us, the lessons. I have no doubt you are gonna be, you are already changing the world and I can only imagine what it might look like with Bowery Farming in five, 10 years from now.
0: Uh, I appreciate it, this is a lot of fun and we will keep punching, I can promise you that.
1: And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning. And you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuchman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.